Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Welcome this morning, Anchor. My name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. And just starting out uh, this morning, I want to just speak to something that has been all over the newsfeed and no doubt um, in our minds and in our conversations. Um, and because it is something that I want to be specific and not off the cuff on, I want to just read it. So if you will, I'll just read it. Um, this speaks obviously to the dis- um, j- judicial decision uh, that was made earlier this week. So. Perhaps the most controversial conversation topic in the last 72 hours is the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And as your pastor, your thoughts and your conversations have been on my heart. I know the charged, volatile nature of this topic, and it's bringing up a variety of emotions in many of us, inside this room and outside of this room. And at Anchor, we believe that all life is sacred, and marked by the image of God. We believe living, that our, uh, living out that means a deep compassion for all, a desire to understand everyone, even somebody from a different perspective, advocacy for the vulnerable, all of the vulnerable, care for all, and it is not merely a political stopping point. I also want to acknowledge that this particular issue has layers and is nuanced and uniquely involves women. And Anchor, we want to be a church that champions women women in all circumstances, especially the most challenging ones. There are some of us in this room that have been affected by abortion in very real ways. And I want to make it clear, abundantly clear, that Anchor is a place where you will experience healing and never shame. I also want to acknowledge that in a room like this, there are varieties of opinions and convictions on this topic. And I'd like all of us to remember that at Anchor, we believe that we are all imperfect Jesus followers, seeking to live for the good of Tacoma and the greater South Sound, which means two things. That as you look around you, every one of us deserves more grace from each other. Every one of us in this room deserves more grace from each other as we have received so much grace from God. And it also means that the only thing worthy of being the center and object of our attention is Jesus above everything else. As your pastor, I I don't want to come off as having a state, saying a statement and then ending the conversation. So if you have a question or if you would like to have a conversation, I'll be available and would love to meet with you and chat with you, whether that's a quick lobby conversation or something more appropriate over coffee or something like that. So just want to extend that um, as a pastoral thought uh, invitation to you all. Now, in a quick, easy shift, um, we'll be talking about the mark of the beast this morning. So, <laughs> oh, mercy. And it wasn't even a joke. I do think it's a little funny. Uh, you know, Bonnie Jean mentioned uh, the decor around, you know, so what a perfect Sunday to talk about the mark of the beast with all the kids camp stuff out there, you know, just totally perfect. We planned it all out. 
Hey, I'm gonna do, we're gonna start off with a little bit of exercise. Are you willing to kind of engage with me a little bit? Anybody, you guys willing to engage with me? All right, all right, I see some people, uh, you know, that may be willing to engage with me. So I'm gonna ask you to do something. It does require a little bit of courage. I'm gonna ask you to put your hands in the air. This is a test to see how sure everyone is. Remember that commercial? Don't worry, it's not too hot yet. Uh, you know, we have AC here, you're safe. Um, all right, I, you've proved that you can do it. Now you can put your hands down. All right, so now that I know all of you can do it, I'm expecting you to be, you're on the hook when I ask you these questions and ask you to raise your hand if this applies to you. See what I did there. Um, you can integrate that little trick into your own life as well. Uh, what, I, what I want us to imagine is what makes us feel at home, okay? What makes you feel at home? For many of us, when we think of home, there are different things that pop up in our mind. So raise your hand, you know, if it's people, if there's family close by, familiar faces, friends and family members, if that makes you feel at home. If you're not raising your hand right now, um, you know, your family members nearby you have some questions. Go ahead and put it down. Uh, the next thing, how about this? Some of us have like there's an object in our home, maybe like a chair that we love or a sofa or a table or maybe just a bed. Hallelujah. Raise your hand if there's an object in your home that makes you feel at home. If you see that thing, you know you are at home. All right. How about this thing? This one was big for Candace and I when we moved to Tacoma. If you just like know where you're at, you know the streets, you know where the grocery store is, you know where the best coffee shop is. If you're familiar with the place you're at, if that makes you feel at home, raise your hand. Uh, great. How about this last one? Um, bumping into someone you know uh, around town. How about that? Does that make you feel at home? Bumping into someone you know around town? Anybody ever saw somebody they knew around town but walked into a different aisle? at the grocery store. Yeah, you're like, I'm not ready for that conversation. I don't want that small talk. I'm out of here. Clearly, this is a problem many of us face. <laughs> well, now with all of these things that kind of cue up home in your minds, and no doubt there are many other things, I want you to imagine all of those things being taken away. All of those things being taken away, the familiar faces, the familiar places, that little object in your home that makes you feel like you are at home, all of those things taken away. And when you imagine that, what you could call the absence of home, you have an understanding of what the Bible refers to as Babylon. You see, Babylon in the Old Testament was the place where Israel was taken away when they were taken away from their home. They were taken from the promised land, Israel, and brought into Babylon by the oppressive forces of the Babylonian army. And they landed in a place that was not their home. People speaking a different language didn't bump into anybody they knew around the streets, were lots of times away from their family. But even more, the values in Babylon were incredibly different from the values in Israel. If Israel said this was good, uh, Babylon would most likely say this was evil. If Israel said this was evil, Babylon would most likely say this is good. The values themselves were inverted. So it created for Israel this deep inner tension where you're walking around and you feel like I am 100% in every way not at home. Now for the New Testament... Often followers of Jesus, they use this term of Babylon to apply just to normal everyday existence as they recognized the life that they were living in the places that they were ultimately wasn't their home. 
Oftentimes they may have felt a measure of comfort and oftentimes they didn't feel a measure of comfort, but living in their everyday life felt like something that wasn't quite their home because they were living in light of the hope of Jesus coming back and making all things new. And so they knew that in their everyday life, there was tension and they should appropriately feel tension. And so John in Revelation, which in this teaching series, we've been going through the book of Revelation, John cues in and uses this term Babylon to describe the everyday existence of Jesus' followers in the first century and beyond. So uh, if you are interested in probing deeper on this, Revelation chapters 14 to 19 describe Babylon, everything from its rise to its fall, and it's used as a symbol of, of existence in this life where we are not totally at home. We'll be talking about, I want us to bookmark that idea of Babylon because it's important as we start to talk about this interesting, confusing topic of these beasts and revelation and the mark of the beast and all of that stuff. That's right, we're going there. Put your seatbelt on. But as we talk about all that stuff, it's important to note that it, it kind of functions in close tandem with this idea of Babylon. You could say that the culture the beasts create are the atmosphere of Babylon. So, um, let's do a little bit of review. If you were with us last week or you weren't, maybe you maybe remember, from, if you were here last week, that we talked about Revelation chapter 12, and there is this pregnant woman who gives birth to this son who is born to rule, and the closer you look, the more it appears that this is describing Mary and Jesus. Now, there are multiple layers there, and Mary steps in for multiple different symbolic references, but, or the woman steps in for many different symbolic kind of attributes, but it's primarily Mary and Jesus. And there is in combat, in battle, with this woman that gives birth to Jesus, Mary, there is this dragon and he's described as ferocious and powerful, antagonistic and evil. And if you were looking at one, one corner of the ring, here's the dragon. The other corner of the ring, here's this baby and this pregnant woman. Who do you think would win? It would seem that the dragon would win. But in this picture, God unmasks the false powers of the world and shows himself to be so powerful that he wins even as a baby. And there is this repetition of this, the devil, which is this dragon, is thrown down. It's almost as if God is spiking Satan like a football in the end zone. There is this repetition in Gen or Revelation 12 that the dragon is hurled down, hurled down, hurled down over and over again. And it is almost as if that's it. We're done. Battle won. We can walk away. In fact, there's a scene probably in an action movie that you can think of or a thriller where the protagonists defeat the enemy. They turn towards themselves, give each other knuckles, crack open a drink, have a good time, and then they look back around only to find out that the enemy has somehow risen back up and is even more effective. This is the scene we pick up in. Dun, dun, dun. The end of Revelation chapter 12, 17 articulates this when it says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who are those offspring? Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. It's us. And, we pick, and then the very next verse in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, reads like this. Then the dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads 
with 10 crowns on its horns and each had a blasphemous name. Now, this is wild, right? This is like some leopard, bear, lion hybrid, as it goes on to describe it, made in some crazy science laboratory or something like that. What's going on? Well, the sevens and the tens are these numbers that symbolize completion. So it seems like by the crowns and by the throne, by all this stuff, there's this seeming completion, this seeming strength that is unmatched by this beast. Now, this is actually a common metaphor in the Jewish world. In fact, in the book of Daniel, which John would have very much had in mind, there are these beasts that come out of the sea. And so what's being communicated with these beasts in the sea? Well, what's being communicated is that these beasts are forces that have lost their humanity and seek to harm humanity. So they are no longer can be described as people. They are beasts and ravenous and destructive. And they've come out to harm humanity. In the Jewish world, the sea was, was understood to be a chaotic place that was unmanageable and uncontrollable. So you could look at this situation here, Genesis 13, and understand it that there are these chaotic forces that have lost their humanity and are seeking to harm humanity coming out of this chaotic place. And it's clear that this dragon that we met in Revelation 12 is on the side of the beasts and in fact, empowering the beasts with the power they have. It goes on in Revelation 13, 11 to describe a second beast. It says, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Note that. When you look at, do a close study of these type of these, both these beasts, it's clear that they like to put on a guise and, and try to look as much like Jesus as possible. So here is one that looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing. So how do we make sense of this? Because many have tried and many have, in their attempts to make sense of it, only confused it for everyone else. Okay, I want to say this. I've said this before in our teaching series through Revelation, that Revelation is not a crystal ball. It's not a cosmic code, something that we can hack and unpack and somehow understand all of history and all the historical figures find a place in this Revelation drama. That is not the case. Revelation is a reality-revealing letter to churches figuring out what it means to follow Jesus in times of challenge and opposition. I'm going to read that again because it's important for us to understand. Revelation is not a crystal ball or a cosmic code. But it is a reality-revealing letter to churches figuring out what it means to follow Jesus in times of challenge and opposition. Quick little notes about the beast, then we'll probe into the really fun stuff. The beast represents powers that are set against God and God's people and that are given strength by Satan, as I mentioned. The first beast that comes out of the water, if you look closely at it, and there are some resources we can give to help you understand this and that probe in really in depth, it symbolizes corrupt political power. The second beast symbolizes corrupt religious power. And these beasts work together to cause harm to everyone around them, notably the people of God. And so what we see in this Revelation 13 is that when these beasts conspire and collude together, it causes incredible pain for Jesus' followers to the point of martyrdom. It gets real. So then 
probing a little closer, what do we make of this number that is mentioned uh, in Revelation uh, 13, 18, 666? That's right, we're talking about it. Let me read the verse here that describes it. Revelation 13, 18, we'll get it on the screen, or actually we don't have it on the screen, I'll just read it. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, that number is 666. Um, so, okay, throughout history, people have uh, concluded that it was the emperor's Nero or Domitian, the, Nero, the emperors that were um, in power during the first century. Others have thought it was Mohammed. Others have just thought it was various popes. Others have thought it was Stalin. Others have thought it was Hitler. Others have thought it was Roosevelt or even Ronald Reagan or Trump or Putin or Biden. Uh, most, or a couple years ago, somebody told me it was the internet, which I'm like, tell me more. I have an email address. I want to make sure I divest myself as quick as possible. He goes, well, you see the www at the beginning of the URL. I'm like, I have typed it in. I'm very familiar. He said, well, W is the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Get it? And I'm like, I don't, uh, no, get away from me. Um, <laughs> Needless to say, at every age, there's always a hypothesis about who this applies to. What's actually being communicated? Well, the NIV I, I, that I read earlier, it says this is the number of a man. But in the Greek, the word a there, that little article, is not present. So it actually just says this is the number of man. Or you could say this is the number of humanity. Six is the number of humanity. Now, seven throughout Revelation is described as the number of divinity. In fact, the Holy Spirit is described elsewhere in Revelation as the seven spirits of God. It's not saying that God has seven spirits. It means that there's the, the Holy Spirit is, is completely the presence of the Holy God. So while six is the number of humanity, seven is the number of divinity. So what's, what's, what, is this, what does all this mean? It means that six is the number that symbolizes almost there but so far off. So close, but so far. Daryl Johnson, I mentioned that his book that he wrote, Discipleship on the Edge, last week, and I would highly recommend it for anyone interested in probing these depths um, more. Um, he says about this, 666, completely incomplete, always falling short of the glory of God. The purpose of the number is not to identify the beast, but to characterize the beast. You could, be, you could describe this number, this 666, really what is behind it. it is this, the heart behind this number is this, is I don't need you, God. You're irrelevant to my needs, God. I'm actually opposed to even the idea of you, God. I don't need you, God. Get out of my life. The 666 number is human ingenuity and human strength is all that we need and we don't need anything else. This is what that number means. That's the heart behind that number. Rather than trying to crack some mysterious cosmic code that functions a little bit like the Da Vinci Code for Christians, really it's just actually way more practical because there's this temptation in all of us to think that we can do it without God, that we can live apart from God. And so what John is describing is that temptation that all of us face is the heart of this beast. It goes on to talk about what's often what's referred to as the mark of the beast. So what do we make of the mark of the beast? 
the reference here in Revelation 13, 16, and it reads, it forced, this is the beast, it forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads. So, uh, just like the number 666 has caused lots of speculation, so is the mark of the beast. Um, it is not uh, tattoos. Um, I, if that was trouble, or if that was true, I'd be in trouble. Um, neither it is microchips or any other thing in the last two years that have made headlines, and I'll just stop there. What is being referred to is something actually much more practical, practical again, and far less mysterious. The New Testament scholar G.K. Beale says the forehead represents the ideological commitment and the hand, the practical outworking of that commitment. So if 666 means I don't need you, God, that heart disposition that all of us at certain points in our lives are tempted to believe, then the mark of the beast is the fixation, the root of that idea taking nest and taking up root space in our head. And then the outworking of that idea working its way out through our hands in our daily activities. And so that kind of temptation to believe that we don't need God might be something that you've experienced in your life, maybe even something you've battled in your life. But what's the mark of the beast is, is that, the, that idea for it to be fixed into your identity. That's what the mark of the beast is. The disposition, the settled disposition of your identity that says, I don't need you, God. You're irrelevant. All I need is me. That's being referred to. In this passage. And here again is this like, it'd be nice if it was a little bit more mysterious because then we would have to, it would be out there and we wouldn't have to wrestle with it. But because it's something that is actually way more relevant and way more practical, we have to do that deep soul searching rather than farm it out to somebody that's bad out there in history. But really, it's that temptation that is universal to all of humanity. So the next question that's important for us to understand is what's being described? Is this a future reality? Something off there in the future? Is this a present reality? Something happening right now? Or is it a past reality? Something that's already happened? And the answer to that question is yes. Revelation is not a chronological sequence of starting with a timeline in Revelation 1 and ending the timeline in Revelation 22. Rather, it's overlapping images seeking to reinforce the same message in a variety of different ways. That means that like the message in Revelation 13 was applicable to the readers of the letter, the first century readers of the letter. You remember, you, you remember this. Maybe if you've been around for a while, you remember that Revelation was actually written to seven churches that were all over the Roman Empire. Seven churches that John was trying to encourage and trying to challenge and trying to help them find what it means to follow Jesus in their everyday life. And some of the things that Jesus said to those churches that John wrote down and sent to them, they actually were very reminiscent of this challenges that I just described with the number and the mark of the beast. Some of the churches were wrestling with bringing in non-Jesus-centered religion into this Jesus-centered religion. So they had this cocktail of like pagan religion and Christian religion. Other churches were seeking to flee the challenges of their everyday life and pursue comfort at the exclusion of living on mission in their everyday life. 
Other churches uh, were, were, were finding themselves to be kind of like lukewarm and, and not really caring for the things of God. So really what's being described in Revelation 13 is something that is already being experienced by the churches that John is writing to. And it's something that we feel in a variety of ways up to this present day and will feel until Jesus returns. The 21st century, in fact, was, you know, some of the times where uh, some, in some places around the world that have felt the tension of being a Jesus follower in a Babylon-type world more than ever. Many feeling that affliction and persecution around the world, even to this present day. Here's what we need to remember, and it might be worth repeating. As long as we live in Babylon, we can expect to feel the tension of, of walking in a world where beasts are on the move. I'm going to read that again because it is important for us to hear. As long as we live in Babylon, we can expect to feel the tension of walking in a world where beasts are on the move. There's a couple calls here in response to this. So in Revelation 13.10, there is what you could call a call to patient endurance. Uh, it's referring to that tension that Jesus followers feel when the beasts are really surging and really attacking. And it says that there'll be lots of pain for Jesus followers and for all the world. Uh, but uh, in Revelation 13.10, it says, this calls for patient endurance. Patient endurance. The Greek language there that's described in those phrases uh, means more than just waiting for bad things to end. It means expecting Jesus to arrive. And that's important, an important distinction. Sometimes we just want the bad things to end. And if that's true, that, and that's normal and it's fine, who doesn't want bad things to end? Who doesn't want challenging things to end? But if we only want bad things to end, then our hope is fixed on the comfort of having the bad things stop. And what John is wanting is he's wanting us to set our hope on Jesus and not just the bad things ending and the challenging ending and the affliction ending, but Jesus arriving. He wants us to set our ultimate focus on Jesus showing up, not just bad things stopping. It's an important distinction for us, especially as we think about being those that follow Jesus. And the second is found in verse 18, where it says, this calls for wisdom. It's talking about that number. As he mentioned, the number is this 666 number, the, the heart of that being, the exclusion of God, the disregard for God. And it says, the, in the very next thing, it says, this calls for wisdom. Now, one thing that's all around us is knowledge. You can look on Google and you can find any type of information you want. And in fact, we love like, you know, bragging about what we know. Hey, have you read that article? Oh, I listened to that song, yeah, last week. No, I already downloaded it. Yeah, I was before you. Anybody with me on that one? Oh, have you been to that new restaurant? No, yeah, we went last week. We already went there. You should try the Hungarian wax peppers. They're amazing. We love knowledge. We love information. We love being on the cutting edge. We love knowing before everyone else knows so that we're the one that's in the know. We love that. But wisdom is something different. Wisdom is something that usually only happens through time and suffering and attention. Wisdom is something that shows up in a person's life when they've had to endure hard things and have not become bitter, but paid attention and let God work his way in their life. Wisdom is found in discerning what is truth and what is a lie. What's is, what is a neat presentation of a glamorous spectacle and what is actual factual truth that is worth staking your life on? This is wisdom. 
So John, on the heels of describing this terrible scene of beasts being on the move, says this calls for patient endurance and this calls for wisdom. And I think this word is true for us as Jesus followers in any season, whether it feels like beasts are on the move or they're not. We need to be people of patient endurance and profound wisdom. In an age of no resilience and mere hunger for information, we need to be resilient, enduring, wise people. Let, our, let us set our sights on that. There are four then identity markers that we'll close with here. You know, see if the mark of the beast is this identity about uh, of, of not caring about God that is not just a flippant thought but a deep identity of disregard for God if that would be what the mark of the beast is what is the mark of Jesus and this is described in Revelation chapter 14 in the first five verses in verse 4 of Revelation 14 it says that Jesus followers are led not leading quick description of Revelation 14 very quick it's described all these beasts and stuff in Revelation 13, but then we switch the camera and it looks on top of what's described as Mount Zion, which is symbol, a symbol for where God rules in the Jewish mind. And there on top of Mount Zion is this lamb. It's Jesus. The lamb doesn't need to dress up like a beast to show that he's powerful. The lamb doesn't need to prove or flex, impose or force. The lamb is a lamb and he is powerful because he is Jesus. And there around the lamb, it says there's 144,000. That's not an exact number. Nobody's checking tickets at the door. It's this number that symbolizes massive, massive numbers beyond counting. And they're around Jesus singing a song. And the first description of the identity of those singing to this God is that they are led but not leading says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Wouldn't that be a fitting description of Jesus' followers? That we would follow the lamb wherever he goes. That we would not get ahead of him. We would not get far, too far behind him. But that we would hunger to be in close proximity with the one who alone offers hope, alone offers love, and alone offers the path towards true meaning and joy. This is the mark of the, this is the, mark of the lamb. The second mark of the lamb is that we are gods and not the beasts. It says that we are purchased in Revelation 14.4, that we are purchased. This is the language from the slavery auction block. We're taken off the slavery auction block and we're brought close to God, purchased by God, what he could afford and what we could not afford, what we could not pay and what he, only he could pay. We're purchased by him. And this is good news on Monday morning and Tuesday nights and all throughout your week when the self-doubt comes in and you find yourself saying, I'm such an idiot. I forgot to do this or I can't believe I did this. But let that reminder be, um, let the reminder that you are purchased by God come quickly in those moments of self-doubt. In the moments where you beat yourself up with the little replay of, of self kind of doubt, be reminded that you are purchased that you are God's and that God did not stand off saying, well, I don't know if it's worth the cost. But he leaned in and said, it is worth the cost. You're purchased. Your identity is one of deep and profound love by a God who is rich in it. The third mark of the lamb is 
We are an offering to God and not a saving for self. 14.4, it's described, we're described as first fruits, which is like worship language. Like you would bring the first fruits of the harvest to God and offer it to God. And so what John is describing is that you and I, we live lives of worship, that our lives are not to hoard back for ourselves, to do whatever petty pleasures we want whenever we want, but our primary disposition is that we are to give ourselves, all of ourselves to God, that he alone is the one that is worthy of our lives and worthy of worship. And the last one, and I'll invite the band up at this point, is that we are forgiven and not forgotten. Forgiven and not forgotten. In verse 5, we're described, or Jesus' followers are described as blameless. Blameless. I don't know about you, but I can look at my life and there are many things that I could be blamed for. But in God's eyes, he sees us as his blameless kids as he has taken all of the freight of our brokenness on himself and given nothing but his purity to us so that in the eyes of God, we are seen as just as clothed in the robes of Christ, freed from our worst mistakes, saved from our folly in the future or in the past or even in the present, seen by the eyes of God as one who is blameless. Can I just tell you, if you bear the mark of the lamb, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are blameless. You are not the sum total of your boneheaded decisions, but you are the sum total of God's gracious love poured out freely towards all of you. And this is what we symbolize, or this is what we take with communion. So in just a little bit, there'll be that opportunity. And it's just recognizing that Jesus has taken the blame so you don't have to. Every week uh, during this teaching series, we've been doing a really cool practice where we've been inviting somebody up who speaks another language other than English to pray over us in that language. And we've been doing that because in Revelation, it says over and over again that around the one king, there are every tribe and every tongue. So in a glimpse of that future day where you'll see all the many multicolored kingdom and multi-languaged kingdom, we are appreciating that in a glimpse of it by hearing prayers in a variety of language. So if you will, invite, uh, welcome Janet Ramos up. Janet, um, you're going to be praying over us in Japanese, which is um, going to be awesome. I happen to be there in the first gathering, so I know. Um, but would you tell us a little bit about kind of your proximity to this language and, and uh, also how you came to be a follower of Jesus? Yeah. What's up, Anchor fam? Um, I'm Janet Ramos. Um, my husband was at the first service, Angel, and he is. Um, I was born in the Philippines half a century ago to a first-generation Filipina Spanish mom and um, a first-generation Japanese dad. And um, six months after I born, we went to Japan, lived there for two years. English actually was my first language and the language we spoke at home. Um, but when we came to the U.S., my parents wanted me to learn Japanese, so they sent me to Japanese school every Saturday. <laughs> 
Um, that school was, uh, the curriculum there was a lot like Japan, so super rigid, lots of um, weighty homework. Um, nobody there spoke English, neither the students nor the, nor, the, nor the teachers, and all the students there were Japanese nationals, and, um, and I, you know, I, I couldn't stand it. I, um, all, my, all my friends got to have Friday night sleepovers and watch you know, Saturday morning cartoons, and I was stuck in a Japanese classroom, and um, my parents thought it would be an awesome, um, you know, just immersion experience for their daughter. And I just, I, I, I didn't even try to learn. So I actually learned a lot more from my Japanese grandmother who came every summer for 24 straight years. Um, she stayed the entire two to three months of my summer vacation and I adored her. Um, she only spoke Japanese and I learned so much from her even though I'm still not fluent. Um, but Japanese is one of several languages I have started in my life and intend to become fluent at some point. Um, but I grew up in a Catholic home. Um, Mom told Dad that, she, that he had to become Catholic in order to marry her. That was a requirement in the Catholic Church in the Philippines in those days. And she was one of those who made certain that we never missed a single Sunday Mass, ever. Not even a holy day of obligation, even if we were vacationing or traveling around the globe. Um, but that was, that was Mom. And um, I also was nourished on a robust foundation of memorized prayers and church rituals. Um, I grew up on a diet of parochial schools. I went to Catholic schools all the way up until my first public school at University of Washington. Um, but it wasn't until after I graduated from college that I came to the aha in my walk with God. And um, I began to grasp the difference between ritual and relationship. Yeah. And my, um, my walk with God got deeper. And my communication with Jesus became more personal. And I learned that I had more freedom with Christ directly through him and, and more responsibility as well with my walk with him. But um, last year, God very evidently moved my husband and me here from Seattle, so C-Town to T-Town, and um, made it also very clear that Anchor would, is, would be our new church home. And um, yeah, I am digging this um, series on Kingdom Talk that Pastor Brian's been sharing with us the past few weeks. I'm eager to see how we, as an Anchor family, may possibly extend past our comfort zone, um, whether it's in our worship songs or on the street with people in our community, talking to people who don't look like us or sound like us, um, to purposely grow our church community so yeah. that we here would look more like yes. the kingdom of God, where we will be parting it up with yeah. our Father in heaven and um, right. with our brothers and sisters from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's right. So. Awesome. Beautiful. Well, I'm going to be reading this prayer in English, and in the past we've had it on the screen, we don't today. So I just want to invite you to close your eyes. I'll be reading a line in English. Janet will be reading a line in Japanese. And um, just know that we're praying this prayer over us as an anchor community. So pray with us. Strengthen us, God, as this world is not our home. Help us to stay faithful to you as you are faithful to us. Give us your daily grace so we might live for the good of our city and your glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Awesome. Thank you, Janet.